listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Well, thank you so much for spending some of your time with us this afternoon, and welcome to 2020. Do you have any kind of a resolution at all? Are you thinking about how you can be a better person in 2020? What about my New Year's resolution? What about my resolution? Maybe my resolution is to be less of a stickler. Maybe my resolution is to be just a little bit more agreeable. For example, those people out there who are arguing that the decade doesn't really end until after 2020. You know, the old dating system used by most countries around the world, Gregorian calendar, tracks decades beginning with one. So that means that really the new decade doesn't begin until the end of this year. Perhaps your resolution, those folks... Don't be such a stickler. Just go with the flow. Yeah, just just follow along. New Year's resolution, drink less. That is what we're going to be talking about in our next segment. Amongst the resolutions that so many people make this time of year is to maybe cut down on the booze. Or maybe your resolution is just simply cut down on the calories. Maybe just drop a few LBs. Maybe that's what you're looking for. You know what the easiest way to do that is? Cut what about the, my New Year's resolution? Thank you. Cut out the booze, my New Year's resolution. We're going to talk about this in our next segment. Cut down on the booze. But we're going to talk about this whole dry January thing. And why is it that we as a culture feel the need to tell everybody about everything we do all the time? Wait, you, All right, fine. You're not going to drink for January? Great. Now shut up. I don't need to hear about it. Do I need to hear about it? The problem is, if you're like me and you're an oppositional sort, when everybody starts saying, I'm not drinking for January, I think, well, get me more liquor. That's just a bad habit, is what that is. Some of the things making news today, Brad Bradford, Toronto City Councilor, raising something that a bunch of people have been talking about in this city for some time, and that is whether or not we should have term limits for city councillors. Because the problem is, is that over there at city council, you get elected and you can often stay there for life because the whole system is tilted towards incumbents, especially at the municipal level where you don't have a party system. So it's not like people are voting for this slate of, uh, of candidates. So generally, they only know the name of the person who is the incumbent. And the longer you serve, the better your name recognition is. And provided you don't get yourself into a whole heap of trouble, that all works out for you. Which is why incumbents are so rarely defeated. And why we have the same faces that serve on council for years and years and years. And it is a problem. What Mr. Bradford has said is that what those councils should do is perhaps put in a three-term limit. So after three terms, that's it. Thank you. Appreciate your service to the public, but could you please move on and make room for somebody else? I want to play number one here from Mr. Bradford, who talked about bringing this up, and oh, surprise, surprise, his compartment or his compatriots on council didn't vote for ending their own political careers. Many of my colleagues are eager to put up their hands and, and suggest that we need more diverse candidates, we, we need a broader pool, we need more people effectively applying for the job, and yet uh, time after time they have actively chosen uh, not to do that. So I thought this committee was a great opportunity to look at that, but unfortunately uh, my colleagues deep-sixed the idea. 
So the whole idea has been deep-sixed. And I think there is arguments on both sides of this equation. I don't think it is quite so simple as to say, no, we put in a term limit, and that's better for democracy. It is better for diversity. It is better to get new blood in there. I, I think absolutely the system is too far tilted towards incumbents. But putting a term limit in, that's difficult because... You know, what if there is someone who is exemplary, who serves the community, and then just is like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's it. Now you're a lame duck. And for the next four years, yes, you've been elected, but, you know, at the end of this thing, you're done. What is the motivation for that counselor to continue to work hard, to work hard on your behalf? What possibly is it in it for them? Again, we're back to no party system. Since there's no party system, it's not like, well, this is a liberal uh, counselor, and they want to ensure that another liberal counselor is elected at the end of that because it's just a free for all. They don't have those kind of banners, so it doesn't it doesn't work that way. That is what some of the counselors are saying in opposition to the idea from Mr. Bradford, from Councillor Bradford, who, by the way, won his seat because the previous Beaches East York counselor said, "I'm only going to serve two. Mary Margaret McMahon said, "That's it. I'm done. Out." And now Mr. Bradford is saying that should continue, although he is proposing three terms. As of today, or rather as of yesterday, January 1st, 2020, today of course is the second, those of you keeping track, we're in that portion of the year where you generally have no idea what day of the week it is. No idea. Because yesterday was a stat for, I, all day long I was like, well, it's, it's Sunday, I'm thinking I gotta go to the grocery, no, no, no. It's Thursday, folks. It's just everybody. Just Here's a heads up. It's Thursday, the 2nd of January. As of yesterday, Ontario has scrapped all out-of-country insurance for medical emergencies, with an exception for dialysis. Uh, the program covered out-of-country inpatient services for up to 400 bucks a day for a high, higher level of care and up to 50 bucks a day for emergency outpatient and doctor services. Back in May, Christine Elliott, who is the Minister of Health, said that the government would cut that program, says it was costly, didn't do a whole lot for pa- taxpayers. Keep in mind that $400 a day is not a whole lot when it comes to U.S. health care and 50 bucks a day for emergency outpatient and doctor services doesn't get you very far. Nevertheless, the Snowbirds, the Snowbirds Association of Canada has said, no, we're going to challenge us in court that we must have this, that this is something that must continue. And you know, when you start angering the Snowbirds, they vote, folks. And we have seen the Ford government backtrack on a number of things when facing uh, concerted pressure and opposition, and you have to wonder, will they backtrack on this one if the seniors, by and large, get together as a voting block and say, we will not accept this, and all of a sudden there are busloads you know, on the front lawn of the park. But that's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen because the majority of people, the majority of snowbirds who travel south of the border have their own insurance. Because they know 400 bucks a day is not going to do it for them, so they're paying more. Now, there is concern that, you know, part of the byproduct of all of this is going to be that insurance premiums as a whole will jump. In other words, that insurance companies will rush to, you know, ask for more money because now you have to have this extra insurance. Well, Sean O'Shea is covering this for Global News and joins me on the line. Hi, Sean. 
Happy New Year, Alan. How are you today? I'm well. Uh, what's the reaction been from the Snowbirds Association, and does this uh, affect others than just snowbirds? Well, the Snowbirds Association has decided to file um, a court action to try to prevent these cuts to OHIP. They're saying that Ontario is now the only country in Canada that is not providing even basic coverage for Canadians who decide to leave the country and have a medical issue. I'm not sure what you were saying in the preamble because I was doing a television story, but the reality is the the coverages outside the country are pretty nominal, up to about $400 a day, but there is coverage there, and they're saying there ought to continue to be coverage under the Canada Health Act. Canadians should have the opportunity to get paid back something if they get sick, even if they're outside the country. For for many, they're going to be looking at this number, this $400 a day number, saying that's pretty low, uh, and really, should we be underwriting foreign travel by seniors when there are so many other priorities for the government to spend on? I think it's a very good question, Alan. $400 is so nominal, I think that a lot of people are going to say, I wouldn't rely on that if I'm leaving the country. And I think, in my experience, that most people who plan big trips, they've decided to go away, they're going for a week or two someplace, they're going to buy private travel medical insurance. If you don't, you're really running a risk. But the CAA, CAA South Central Ontario, did a study recently, and they found that about 25% of Ontarians who travel don't have coverage. It's typically people that are going down, let's say, to Buffalo for a day of shopping, those sorts of quick adventures across the border. Those coverages aren't there. People have been relying on what the Ontario government's provided, or they just really haven't thought about it. But the reality is the cost of, of insurance and medical costs in the United States is so high. Years ago, I went down to Philadelphia. My daughter had a dehydration issue. We spent $1,300. And that was about 20 years ago for about two hours in the hospital. So it can be astronomical. I think most wise consumers are going to spend the money on travel medical insurance. And for many of those people, this change isn't going to make a huge amount of difference to them. And I guess that's sort of what I was saying in the preamble, too, as well, is that when you when you annoy seniors, seniors are motivated and they're voters. And that can be problematic for a government. But if there isn't a widespread uptake on outrage from those 60 and, and older about their travel plans, I don't think you're going to see the kind of pressure on the government that would be required to overturn this. I think you're probably right, but when you bring it to the court, a court decides uh, on the basis of, of considerations that aren't all political, right? So I think that I think that the way that the Snowbird Association is looking at it is, if you take this away, what else could be taken away down down the road? And they're concerned about that. I think the court will decide, may favor what the Ford government has done, it may not. But I think the word to, to travelers is really make sure you've got coverage. And uh, I've done stories over the years where people do have coverage, and they didn't research the coverage sufficiently, and then they needed it, and they didn't have it because they failed to disclose some visit to a doctor previously. I mean, if you're going to travel, please, please make sure you do the research, you buy the insurance coverage, you're honest with the provider, so that if you have a problem, you're going to make sure that you're going to be able to get paid back, as it can bankrupt people if they end up in a foreign country without coverage and they get sick. It's absolutely financially devastating. Sean O'Shea, Global News reporter. Always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much, Sean. Thanks, Alan. Have a great day. One of the things that a lot of people are doing at this time of year is they're thinking about their health. 
and they're thinking about what is it that they can do in the coming year that's better for them to make them healthier, whether or not that's losing a few pounds, maybe quitting smoking, whatever it is. For so many of us, it's cutting back on the booze because that's where a lot of calories come from. And I can tell you just as a personal anecdote is that you just find yourself just you know, you start with, you know, there's a drink and because it's a social situation and the next thing you know, and then you think to yourself, well, how many days has it been since I didn't have a drink at all? And over this last couple of weeks, you know, with the Christmas parties and the get-togethers and the eggnog and everything else, exactly. And then you think, well, maybe I better do something about that. And then you get on the old inner tube webage and you think, well, wait a second. Looks like everybody else is doing it, too. It's something called Dry January. Hey, listen, listen. Dry January officially began in 2011 when Emily Robinson, who was then deputy CEO for a U.K. charity called Alcohol Concern, gave up drinking for January while training for a half marathon. She was thrilled with the results. She lost weight, slept better, had more energy, and everyone wanted to talk to her about it. So she decided to start posting it. And encourage other people to do the same. And then it began to sort of catch fire. So now, if you're on the Instagram, if you're on the gram, you're on your Facebook, everybody's hashtagging the dry January. Well, we're going to get to that in a moment, why we feel compelled to share. But before we do that, let's bring in Laura Hensley, who is a Global News National Online journalist and is a regular contributor to this program and has talked before about giving up the booze. Laura, hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Alan. How are you feeling? I'm feeling okay, thanks. How are you? Did you have a hangover on New Year's Day? You know what? I did not. I woke up sober and I felt really good. You did, right? Eh? I even went to yoga class. Uh-huh. Did you miss out on something? Did you have a bit of the FOMO on New Year's Eve? No, I had a great New Year's Eve. I was with friends. I went to the Raptors game. Um, I celebrated. I had a little bit of champagne at midnight, but I think, you know, what was really nice about that was just having a bit, you know? It's all about moderation. So when we talk about dry January, um, I think that's an important part of the conversation. It's just the idea of not overdoing it. Right, and it doesn't have to be complete abstinence in your case you had the bubbles tickle in your nose it wasn't a completely dry new year's eve exactly i think the idea of cutting back and reevaluating your relationship with alcohol is sort of the core of dry january you know it's about taking a step back and asking yourself okay how much do i drink how do I feel when I drink? Why am I drinking? And do I even want to do it? And I think for a lot of people, alcohol is just such a social thing. You know, we have happy hour, we celebrate after work, we go out on the weekend, and you can end up feeling like really terrible afterwards. And we wonder why we keep doing it to ourselves. But when you take a step back and you actually stop and think, huh, do I need to do this? You start to feel a lot better. And I think that's where people's, you know, internal shift comes from is when they re really reevaluate and that's what I think dry January is about. I want your perspective listeners at 416-870-6400 star 640 on your cell to talk about whether or not you're going to get on board this dry January, how you feel about it. Speaking with Laura Hensley, a global news online journalist who's a regular on this program. And Laura, do, do you post about this? Do you put it on the, the gram? 
No, you know, for me, I think the last year I really made a conscious decision to cut back on drinking. You know, it was making me really severely depressed, to be perfectly candid with you. I would have a few drinks on the weekend and I would feel severely depressed for days. And I realized my mental health is so important to me. You know, it's important in all aspects of life. But when it comes to work and relationships, I want to feel my best. So I really reduced my drinking and I noticed that I felt so much better. I had so much energy and it's not something I really post or talk about publicly too much, but if people notice I'm not drinking and they ask me why, I'm pretty upfront with it. You know, I just say it's not for me or I'm not really in the mood or it doesn't make me feel great. And people usually drop it. But one thing I've noticed in being a bit more you know, forthcoming with my choices around alcohol is that people are interested in cutting back too, but there's still so much societal pressure. They're not at that point yet where it's totally acceptable. Laura Hensley is Global News National Online Journalist and always great to have you on. Laura, I appreciate your perspective. Thanks so much, Alan. All right, let's uh, get to you and your calls in just a moment. Let me, let me ask you this. Are you planning to get on board with the dry January, 416-870-6400, star 640 on your cell. And as you think about that, let me give you some other perspectives here. Because Christy Harrison, who is a dietitian and author of a book called Anti-Diet, believes that this whole dry January thing is not such a good idea. She believes that a more moderate approach to cutting back will yield more health benefits than cycles of abundance and periods of deprivation because this kind of black and white approach tends to be self-perpetuating. And she says, quote, when people are pulled over to the side of a restriction, there's an inevitable pendulum swing into feeling out of control. That's a natural response to restriction. In other words, the pendulum swings one way in January. And the next thing you know, February is just binge month because you're like, woo! That wants me that big. Exactly. Thank you. Well, that whole, you know, dry January thing is in the rearview mirror. We're going to bring in a couple of more perspectives here. Jackie Lamport is my producer today. Rob Trevison is working the board. And neither of you drink at all. So the dry January thing, that's not an issue. It's a 12 dry month life. of the year. Hashtag. You're going to draw hashtag dry life. Yeah. Correct. Or as we call it, a normal life. No, I'm yeah. just kidding. <laughs> now, talk about the societal pressure here for a moment. I mean, you know, so much of our world is based on now have a cocktail for this and now have a drink for that and a toast for this. Is that a difficult thing? Uh, no, because I'm open about the fact that I don't drink. So then it, if it's a toast, it gets replaced with something that's non-alcoholic. I, I drink ginger ale a lot at events and stuff. Because if you're if you're at like a fancy event or you're, you're supposed to be drinking a toast, ginger ale is something where nobody's going to comment because it looks like champagne, right? So, but I, I think at first... It was a lot of, why aren't you drinking? Why don't you have just one? You can just have one. Like, all, like you do get that. Like Because oh, people feel bad. It makes them question their own choices, I feel. But once people came to know that, hey, I just don't drink, like, it's it's not a problem anymore. And this is funny because we talk about this. We're talking about, we'll joke about it in our next segment about veganism. And, and it's, you're both vegans as well. We don't well, drink and we don't eat meat. I know. It's so, people alive. <laughs> we're no fun. But this is, what is it, do you think, about human nature that makes people, and I, I feel this instinctively, when you guys start talking about not drinking and not eating meat, both are things that I would like to cut down on, not eliminate, but instinctively, I feel like, would you quit, I would just, 
lay off. Because I feel like people just get, it, it literally, it, it feels like it's attacking your, your yeah, own. I feel like you're <laughs> judging me. Yeah, and I'm not. Like, exactly. It's just a lifestyle that I've found that I like personally for myself. And I think that when you bring up, you know, and the reason that people are so opposed to vegans and veganism or to not drinking is because it, it just makes you question your own choices and whether or not you're treating your body healthy. It's like when you see people who work out profusely and they're like jacked and you're like, well. I'm getting a cheeseburger. That person's clearly a D-bag because. Because, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I can't stand them because... But, but they're not. They're, <laughs> okay, just, they're, they're just, hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's the thing. I think you just kind of, you get a little bit self-confident or uh, conscious. Here's something I, I want to bring up. This is from Mark Zisman, who is a psychologist and clinical director of Lake County Services in Chicago. Mr. Zisman points out studies that show that taking a month on for, off from drinking can help in various ways, improving sleep, result in weight loss. But he cautioned those who are heavy drinkers. Where are my heavy drinkers at out there? Heads up, because a more mild or moderate drinker might find success in a month off from alcohol and then usher in February with even heavier alcohol use. Mr. Zisman says, quote, largely the risks are how much is somebody drinking prior to actually participating in dry January. Alcohol is one of two substances where people can actually die from going through withdrawal. This applies to other kinds of prescription drugs, and people forget that. So that's something to keep in mind. I don't think it's, you know, obviously you have to be a fairly heavy drinker to, you know, to put yourself at a significant risk, risk, but you have to keep in mind where you're at and where you're going. Interesting perspective. And we're going to come back, and we're going to talk more about veganism and this whole idea about why is it that those that live healthier and better lives than us make us feel so judged. I don't know why that is. I feel judged, Jackie. I feel judged, Rob. Don't feel judged. Feel encouraged. We're not judging you. You don't? You're not judging? No. You look a little... I judge Rob. I'm staring at you. Yeah, that's true. I am staring right at you. My eyes are looking at you. Getting you up to date on the situation in Australia where thousands of tourists have now fled Australia's wildfire-ravaged eastern coast ahead of worsening conditions as the military has now begun to evacuate people that are trapped on the shore further south. Cooler weather since Tuesday has aided firefighters and allowed some people to replenish supplies, but the situation is still dire. And the Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, says the deadly wildfire crisis is likely to last for months to come. Officials in Australia's most populous state, which is New South Wales, have declared a state of emergency. And Morrison, the Prime Minister, says there's a connection here between climate change and what is happening in Australia. I've always acknowledged the link, as has the Minister, uh, between the broader issues of global climate change and what that means for uh, the world's weather and uh, the dryness of conditions in many places. But I'm (laughs) sure you would also agree that no response by any one government anywhere in the world can be linked to any one fire event. And this is where it gets difficult when we start talking about climate change and you say, well, yes, climate change is real and yes, it's man-made, but... It doesn't really have anything to do with this real, this fire, necessarily. Now, those tourists, as I mentioned, are fleeing the eastern coast ahead of those worsening conditions. Here is the Premier of Victoria, Daniel Andrews, 
saying that the state and national government are trying to work together here. This is all about looking after people who need our help and support and being ready for a couple of very challenging days and indeed a couple of very challenging months given that we're only at the beginning of what's going to be a very challenging fire season. That is the Premier of Victoria, Daniel Andrews, talking about what is to come in the months ahead. So far, at least 17 people have been killed. More than 1,400 homes have been destroyed. And as you heard, this could just be the beginning of a very long and disastrous fire season for Australia. Let's go to New Jersey here, where authorities say a man set off fireworks as his friend made a marriage proposal. You get this whole thing, if you ever, you ever, you know, get engaged, here's the thing, is the first thing that somebody asks, they say congratulations, and then they ask you for a story. What would, so what, how did it happen? And you got to, and increasingly you got to have some fancy thing, whether, you know, whether, you know, some big to do, you got a buddy there filming the whole thing. Well, in this particular case, in Jersey, the friend sets off fireworks right next to to a movie theater, and that creates panic in the movie theater. As patrons there mistook it all for gunshots, the confusion caused authorities to evacuate the entire theater. And then responding officers found the remnants of the fireworks, determined no shots had been fired. The man who set off the fireworks was charged with an infraction and disorderly conduct. Nice work, best man! Here's something else that always makes me wonder. And I see this time and time again as a news anchor. If we have a story on the news about all kinds of death and destruction, that's a tragedy. If we also have a story about an injured cat, that causes people to call, write, get upset, to an extent that human tragedy never does. And th- here's my example on this. I'm reading through the wires, the Canadian press wires this morning, and the headline on this story that I'm about to read, this is the headline, carjacking goat. So I think to myself, well, I'm reading this 100%. I'm reading this thing. So this is what it says. This is the actual news story. From Sand Springs, Oklahoma, police in Oklahoma say a man was arrested on New Year's Day after he allegedly took a truck and drove it more than 100 miles with a sleeping passenger and a goat inside. Police say 40-year-old Brandon Kirby took the truck, which was parked outside an adult video store, and drove it more than 130 miles. Authorities say he eventually was arrested near Tulsa after he let the passenger and goat go, and the victim called police. Okay, here's my point. What's more important in that story? The goat or the passenger? I think maybe the human might just, I'm just going to say, on a hierarchy of needs, ranking, the human outranks the goat. But here's another thing that I'll tell you. If the slug line, if the headline on this was carjacking guy, I'm like, eh, maybe I'll read it, maybe I won't. But if there's a goat involved, you are in. I am in. I'm on team goat. Exactly. Uh, and speaking of loving animals, says uh, my vegan compatriots join me again. The Golden Globes is going meatless this year. Worst. Guests are going to be served a 100% plant-based meal just ahead of showtime on Sunday. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association saying Thursday that it wants the initiative to raise environmental awareness about food consumption and waste. Enjoy your salad, folks. 
Ricky Gervais, isn't he doing? He think he's hosting again. He is hosting again. I hope he eats bacon up on stage. Just or maybe just. Ricky Gervais is like extremely vegan. I I know, but it would you be, hope he eats see bacon. that would be funny. It'd be yeah, that'd be classic humor. <laughs> As he gets sick, I I know he's a vegan, and everybody's behind the plant based meal. But this, I come back to my point from the last segment. I feel judged. I feel like I just want to go and get a triple burger because, you know, the Hollywood foreign press is saying, well, have your plant-based meal. I just want to say this. I don't don't care what you eat, Alan. You eat what you want to eat. I'll eat what I want to eat. I don't know why I feel judged. I feel judged. But, you know, a lot of people feel that reaction. maybe have a salad for roughage. A lot of people feel that that reaction, though. And that's why you need people who are like Ricky Gervais and are very, very outspoken. But you also need people who just come in and have a really great smelling meal. And people are like, what's that? And you're like, well, this is my vegan meal. Exactly. And you're like, well, I want to eat that. no one ever. A hearing in Norwich, England, in the UK on Thursday, where a judge will look into whether veganism is, quote, a philosophical or religious belief. This all stems from a guy who gets fired. He says, I got fired for my veganism. Dietary vegans and ethical vegans say, well, wait a second. No, this is actually a philosophical or religious belief. My vegan friends, do you believe your veganism is a religious belief? No, No, I don't have any I'm also an atheist, so yeah. No, it's not Same. a religious belief. It's philosophical, I, I guess. Yeah, I would say that it could be technically philosophical. It's it's a it's a it's it's definitely something to do with morals. There are some religions that are vegetarian, like Hindus and Hare Krishnas. Sure. But, but it's he's not, not claiming, he's not claiming that. So it's on its not own, it a is religious not. or philosophical belief. It is a choice. It is a it's a, per- it's a moral choice. It's yeah. a moral it's choice. Not yeah. Philosophical? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Well, I don't what know. is right. philosophy? It is a choice. It's not, it's no, not, no, you're it, right, it's a choice. It's not a human right. No, you're right. Okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> Somebody give me some vegan stuff. eggnog, would you? I think you need a hug. You're not being judged. Don't yeah. worry. <laughs> Just, I want you to know that. We're not judging you. But this is why those headlines get so big. It, it, like, you know, when, when vegans are being crazy, it's because people want to jump on this. No, no, no. No, no. Vegans are the crazy ones. I'm fine. Because you, you get to feel attacked, right? Because no, there's normal vegans like Rob and I. On your New Year's resolutions, perhaps maybe a little romance? What do you think? Would that be good? Maybe you're going to get on some of that social media. Maybe get on the Tinder. Maybe get on the old Bumble. Now that Sharon Stone has been relisted now. You heard about Sharon Stone being taken off Bumble because, you know, too good to be true. No, can't be Sharon Stone. But turns out it was Sharon Stone. So maybe you're out there, you're on the market. You're having a look-see, you're swiping right. But what if you're perhaps on your second go-round? You got a couple of kids. And you swipe right, and it starts going right. Oh, yeah. Well, now you're faced with a big problem. How is it that you're going to integrate this new person into your life? What are you going to tell the kids? You know, the number of children raised in a single-parent household has risen slightly from 2001 to 2016 with 19.2% of kids aged 0 to 14 living with a single guardian. So how is it that you break this news? How do you deal with it? 
Olivia Bowden is a Global News National Online journalist and will be joining us shortly to talk more about it. She's filed a piece to globalnews.ca about this, which is pretty interesting. We'll get to that in just a moment. But before we get to swiping right and telling the kids all about it, now I have my own stories about that in just a moment because I've gone through this just quite frequently. But recently, not frequently. <laughs> not frequently. <laughs> Sorry, honey. Uh, but occasionally, you know, you have to you have to sort of integrate your kids into the life. And you have to be very careful with it because you know, with the kids, they had there's a lot at stake with that. And Olivia now is here in the studio. Hey, Olivia, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate you being in here. For and now, sure. What did your research into this? tell you about telling the kids that there's a new person in your life? Well, um, what the experts really say is to really be mindful of how your kids are feeling uh, at the time. Uh, So it it really depends on how old your kids are as well and how how fresh uh, the split may be from from whoever your partner was. Um, So they really said that the first thing to do is really gauge where your kids are at emotionally, whether that means having a conversation with them or if they're younger, being mindful of, of, of how they're behaving. Sure. And I think, you know, one thing that I always kept in mind with with my kids is that I don't think you can ever overestimate that how much kids want their parents to get back together, that that even though they accept often that is not going to happen, you know, even when they're older, I think that that pull is always there. And so you have to be super mindful when you bring a new person in and to keep in mind that you know, the the other parent is still part of the equation a lot of times, and you you have to bring it all together in a holistic way. Yes. They, they said, especially if you have kids under 12, um, the expectations or, or the hopes that the parents may get back together may may be stronger than, than you think, uh, d- depending how long it's been. Um, so that's why, you know, who, who I spoke to, they really said, have that conversation with your kids before you even, you know, start looking for someone, before you even go on that first date, especially if they're younger, you know, ask how they're feeling about it. Even before you go on a date, that not that interesting to do it even yes. before you find yourself in a situation where you have to think about telling them about somebody? Yes. Uh, um, just, just to see, you know, saying, you know, mommy or daddy, um, you know, maybe wanting to, you know, meet a new friend, d- depending how young they are. It's it's okay to refer to them or, or a potential partner as a friend if, if, if they're really little. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if, if, if the kids are, have expectations and if the, the other parent is still around, like you said, a co-parenting uh, situation, you may need to, you know, it's about changing their expectations for what may happen. And the, the, I think the challenge always, and for me, and I think for any divorced uh, father or mom, is, is that question of when. Like, because if you're dating, you know, dating, yeah. dating is, goes, you know, sometimes it goes well, sometimes it starts right. great, then it just all of a sudden turns and, or it doesn't work out. And you don't really want to bring the kids along on all those journeys. No, no definitely not. That, that's why they said if, if you have been seeing someone and only introduce them to the family when you know that it's serious enough that this is going to lead somewhere because you do not want to introduce your kids to someone who you may, you know, may be there only temporarily um, because that will mess with their emotions. And that is I, I, that is so difficult to try and manage. 
as a parent, because not only are you managing your children and trying to obviously keep their needs and their wants number one in your mind, but also you have a new partner, too. Mm -hmm. And there are often expectations in there. You think about, you know, when you were younger, it was all about when are you going to introduce so-and-so to your mom? Yeah. And and when you have kids and you're, you know, perhaps looking for, you know, a, a second marriage or another relationship... It's much more difficult. It's not your mom you're worried about anymore. No, definitely. And 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 they also said, you know, have that conversation with your new partner as well um, so they know what the expectations are for your kids. So if, if you don't want this partner to behave like their new mom and dad, you also need to make that clear because they said that, you know, sometimes a new partner will feel like, oh, these are my kids too pretty immediately and may, you know, be trying to fill a mom or a dad role. But if you don't want that, you need to be clear with them about that beforehand. And, and so many of us, I mean, obviously, divorce 50%. I mean, it's, you know, the numbers, share, you know, I just shared one of those numbers about the number of kids that live with one guardian. It's up to 19.2%. So it's a large portion of the population. And now we're, as adults, often children of divorce as well. So we come to the table often with our own baggage about how new parents or, or new parental units were brought into our lives. Right. And I think if, you know, if, if you're also a child of divorce and you, you've been divorced, there's probably, you know, you, you are maybe putting your own pressures on yourself about how you, you want this to go well, you, you, wanna, you want uh, your kids to, you know, engage with the new partner, um, accept them, but it, it seems that communication really is the, the key point in all of this. It is thorny, absolutely thorny, and such a fascinating article, and you can read it right now on globalnews.ca, Olivia Bowden, Global News National Online Journalist. Great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So very interesting and thorny, and I think a lot of people are thinking about that. A lot of people end up in a situation where... They have to make these, you know, they have to think about the kids and then the balance of the new relationship. And I tell you, it, uh, you know, it, second chances in life, they don't come cheap. And when you get a second chance in life, when it comes to a relationship, you know, it's so important to treat it with the kind of respect that it is due and be grateful I think that's the most important part. All right, I got a couple stories to uh, round out your hour here. Let's begin, shall we, in Kentucky. And I promised this story a little while ago. Authorities in Kentucky say a woman on probation who had to give in a urine sample, she gave her probation officer a sample of dog urine. Yeah, that's what happened. This is not a Cheech and Chong uh, segment. This is actually true. Police say 40-year-old Julie Miller was arrested Monday on a charge of tampering with physical evidence. She also was charged with a parole violation and trafficking in a controlled substance. Police say Miller admitted she tried to use the dog urine as her own sample. I have questions. I have questions about the collection of the sample, whether it was her dog Whose dog, dog was it? Stranger dog? Was it a strange dog? It was my dog. And could you perhaps just go, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I got the vials mixed up. I was, you know, Fido's, I was taking that to the vet. Apparently, that argument did not fly. You know those old commercials, the commercials with the, uh, you know, the Coke delivery driver and the Pepsi delivery driver and their, you know, their, their rivals? You know those? Well, it turns out when it comes to delivery people 
That really happens. That's really true because it, the police now in Pennsylvania say an Amazon delivery driver stole a package from a house that had been delivered there just hours earlier by a UPS delivery driver. That's it. So this is what happened. Is is the woman in the house reported that her package was stolen, and when she checked the surveillance footage, it showed that the UPS driver drops off a package at the house, and then an Amazon driver comes by, drops off two packages, takes a look at the UPS thing, and says, well, screw that guy, and just picks up the UPS package and wanders off. Now that is cold. Ice cold. No! Ice cold! (laughs) 